Hey, Rachel, I've been thinking about the right. Me too. I mean, we're coming up on an election year, and I'm really concerned about this extreme partisanship that seems to... No, no, no. The other right. The direction? The abstract concept. The anti-mutant group. You know, in retrospect, that's probably where I should have started. Well, we are coming up on an election year. Elections are fleeting, man. Cameron Hodges' creepiness? Eternal. If that was supposed to be reassuring, you have failed badly. Why on earth would I intend anything about Cameron Hodge to be reassuring? (laughs) Come on. Anyway, you were saying... The right. Right. So, what ended up happening to them? You see the purifiers pop back up every now and then in Friends of Humanity, but the right seems to have kind of fizzled. Well, yeah. That's because they made the mistake of engaging the services of Dr. Frederick Animus. Wait, isn't that... The animator, yeah. He was supposed to be looking for ways to stifle mutation. Did he? Hell no. He's the animator. He took their money and used it to create weird human-animal hybrids before killing Doug Ramsey and then long-term evolving into some kind of sentient virus. What?! Rachel Edditon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 75 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time we are coming back to X-Factor, speaking of the soapiest of that soap opera. God, it really is. Everything is terrible, too. You know, I mean, that's really a theme in the mid-80s where we are right now. I don't think any of the books have happy things going on. No, I mean, but X Factor, like, everyone is miserable, dead, crazy, or I guess Hank McCoy. Well, give him time. But yeah, so let's talk a little bit about where we've been with X Factor. Well, speaking of dead characters, I think we wrapped up last time we talked about X Factor with Angel committing suicide. Like, literally, he flew off in a plane, which then exploded. He had recently lost his wings. They'd been amputated after they'd been horribly maimed in the Morlock tunnels during the mutant massacre. Cameron Hodge, I believe, had ordered their removal nominally to save Angel's life, but actually as part of a massive gaslighting and sabotage campaign that started even before the conception of X-Factor. Yeah, and we're going to be learning a lot more about that in the issues we'll be talking about today. But so right now, X-Factor is down a member and down a friend. They're starting to really question whether the whole X-Factor mutant hunters in public, exterminators, mutant sort of freedom fighters in private thing is causing more harm than good. Spoiler, yes, it absolutely is. And that's not being helped by the fact that, you know, in addition to Angel dying, the team itself is falling apart. You know, Jean Grey is still coping with coming back from the dead. Cyclops has basically spent the last 15 issues having a massive nervous breakdown and midway through discovered that his estranged wife, Madeline Pryor, and apparently their infant son were first missing. And then uh, Madeline's body was found. And they go back and forth between whether Nathan Christopher is presumed dead or presumed missing. That seems to sort of oscillate depending on plot demands. So that's all terrible. Meanwhile, Hank has mostly been watching the various teenagers and children that X-Factor has taken in. So that's Rusty, Skids, Boom Boom, and Artie at this point. Which are, you know, the more functional members of the group, I suppose. They are a group of relatively delightful scamps, although they're mostly delightful scamps with horrible traumatic backstories. But, you know, they're doing okay for now. Exactly. The one who's mainly been untouched by all of these events is actually the one who is missing right now. In the issues we covered the last time we talked about X-Factor, Iceman just disappeared into nowhere. And we'll get back to that a little ways into this episode. But for now, I guess let's jump into X-Factor number 16. Things are pretty rough. I mean, Angel just died. The original four remaining members are coping with this. And the kids who are at X-Factor HQ are just trying to figure out kind of what to do, what things are looking like. And they figure, well, we might as well just keep doing what we were doing, training to use our powers, because that's what we're here for. Well, they're not the only ones training. The adult X-Factor members are trying to maintain 
some semblance of a normal schedule and, you know, business as usual. You know, I don't know what exactly counts as business as usual for X Factor because there are like layers there. I think business as usual is things being terrible and traumatic. So, you know, hey, check. Well done. Right. And what better way to establish terribleness and trauma than a training sequence gone wrong? Yeah. And I mean, so we've talked many times about the Danger Room Cold Open, where we get introduced to some of the characters and their powers and their personality traits while they're training. And that's sort of what this is here. I mean, it's not the Danger Room, because X-Factor doesn't have one of those. It's just sort of a room where they train. Well, and X-Factor doesn't seem to do group training. You almost always see these one-on-one sessions with the adult members mentoring individual ones of the kids. Right. It's more the tutoring room. And yeah, in this case, it's um, Rusty and Skids. They're training to use their powers. Now, Rusty, uh, as you may remember, is a pyrokinetic. He can create and manipulate fire, but he's not very good at it yet. And Skids has a force field that she can sort of skate on, keeps her basically invulnerable, but makes it very hard for her to do things like eat because she can't lower it, really. She has very, very little voluntary control. And so as they're training, Rusty accidentally snags the pearl necklace that she's been wearing since we met her and pulls it through her force field and the pearls sort of start to fall apart. He breaks the string. Exactly. And she unexpectedly sort of freaks out and flashes back to a very formative experience she had that we haven't heard about yet. What we see is Skid's, you know, most intense memory associated with the necklace breaking, which is her father beating her mother and pulling the necklace off her and having it fall apart at that point. Right. And I think this is a really important thing because Skid's previously had been kind of a blank slate of a character. We knew she was immensely fashionable. I mean, dude, look at those leggings and that hat. And we knew what her powers were. We knew that she was with the Morlocks, but we didn't really know much about who she was as a person or why. Nor that she was part of the very exclusive Bruce Wayne club of people with tragic metaphorical necklaces. Uh, Yes, that's true. Metaphorical beaded necklaces. So I really like the fact that we're seeing these characters who don't have, you know, decades of history behind them start to be characters we can empathize more with. That's something that New Mutants was always very good about with its young characters, but they were the main characters. These teenagers and kids that are part of X Factor are sort of ancillary, so it's nice to see them, you know, being a little more believable and three-dimensional. Now, the beads are all over the floor at this point, and Jean, who's been supervising, decides this is great. This is impromptu training. Hey, skids, lower your force field pick up the beads. And she just says, I can't, and freaks out and runs away. Rusty goes after her. We already know that Rusty and Skids are interested in each other. They haven't really done much because, you know, Skids has a force field she can't lower. Well, and the last time Rusty made out with someone, he inadvertently set her on fire. So, you know, they've both got some things going on. They both have some issues. And I love Scott and Jean watching them. And Cyclops says, if anybody can get through to her, make her open up, it'll be Rusty. Just the way back when we were kids, you got through to me. To which Jean responds, yeah, hope it works out better for them than it did for us. Seriously, you guys are not great examples right now of young lovers that everything worked out okay with. I mean, eventually you will be, but now is not that time. Well, and this is going to be a running theme throughout this arc, which I actually really like because we've talked about this before. We've talked about how Scott and Jean sort of get held up as the inevitable ex-couple when their relationship is actually a lot more complicated and a lot more fraught. And... X-Factor does kind of a good job of picking that apart and picking apart the ways other people see them versus the ways they see themselves. As a book that started out without really going into that kind of depth in the first few issues, Louise Simonson has gotten incredibly textured and nuanced in the way she describes these characters that have so much history and really makes their present not just a generic, straightforward extension of their past but very much its own thing, very much unexpected and interesting and real. So speaking of their present, at this point, Skids just heads the hell out of X-Factor. Rusty chases her and she goes down to the Morlock Tunnels, which is where she lived before she came here. This is an area that is now super unsafe. It's where a lot of the mutant massacre happened, and it's basically been evacuated since then. 
And Rusty is trying to tell her, hey, this isn't safe. You got to come back when an example of why it's not safe shows up. That being Mask, a.k.a. the worst Morlock. Right. Mask is so terrible. Mask is someone who has the power to reshape flesh to basically reform people's faces, everyone but his own. He uses this in general extremely violently and rarely with the consent of his victims. And so they run the hell away just in time to catch a news report that the woman that Rusty burned that you were mentioning earlier, Rachel, that being this woman named Emma, is back in the hospital. And Cameron Hodge, the PR executive slash general administrator of X Factor, is saying, slash hey, supervillain. We don't know that yet, though. Oh, um, we know. Well, you know, they we, don't know. We that. know. Yes. Well, we know many things. Anyway, and Hodge is saying that without Angel being around and with his fortune being all tied up with all the legal proceedings around his death, they probably can't keep supporting her. And Rusty feels super shitty about this because it was his fault, even if it wasn't deliberate, that she got severely burned. So Rusty decides that he's going to fix things as best he can and strikes some kind of deal with Mask. We're going to find out the details of that later. But for now, Rusty skids boom boom and I think... Artie, sneak off to the hospital to pick up Emma. Skids knows her way around pretty much tunnels and vents and systems. And Artie, based on his powers, which have to do with visual projection, is basically a tiny, adorable, lumpy heads-up display. Yeah, he would be awesome in Metal Gear Solid, knowing when guards were on other sides of walls and stuff. He'd be terrible on the codec, though. Uh, yeah, that's true. But entertaining and adorable. So, yeah, they do find Emma, and she is indeed severely burned. I mean, you know, her face is, well, she's a burn victim. So they convince her, hey, there's somebody who we found who can help you. Please trust us and come with us and head back toward the tunnels. Now, she's, you know, not in great physical shape after her injuries. So Yeah, why, like, bringing someone with still healing skin grafts into a sewer strikes me as a really bad idea on a lot of levels. So I have a no prize for why that's fine, no. which is that after the mutant massacre, Thor, like, scoured the Morlock tunnels with Holy Asgardian lightning. And so I'm pretty sure that Holy Asgardian lightning just kicks the crap out of any sort of microbes that might exist so down the there. the Morlock tunnels are now effectively antiseptic? Yeah, you could, like, eat off those but sewer with, floors. With that state maintain? I mean, they're still underground. They're still leaky. They're still like really old New York sewers. Well, you know, the microbes haven't had much of a chance to rebuild their microbe empire and they live in fear of it's Holy Asgardian lightning. Oh, no, no, no. St stuff happens really quickly in comics. It's been like a couple weeks at most. I don't know, man. Holy Asgardian lightning. Well, and one of the reasons I think we should talk about Emma a little bit and what's happened to her and how things have changed, because she is fine with going along with Rusty. You know, their last meeting obviously went fairly poorly. Yeah. Since she's been injured in the hospital, she's basically found religion. I don't know. I mean, the way Bob Layton wrote her, it was unclear if she was a prostitute or a, quote, loose woman. Yeah, I thought it was pretty heavily implied that she was actually a sex worker, but it's never made particularly explicit. But yes, yeah, she has now renounced her apparently wicked ways and has found God and has turned her entire life around. And that part's kind of weird because, I mean, it really heavily demonizes sex work and I don't feel good about that. I feel like it's maybe potentially a realistic arc, but I have trouble parsing whether and to what extent it's written as a positive change or not. It's something that plays out really oddly to me in ways that I'm really struggling to actually encapsulate. So, I mean, I, I guess I'll just leave that there on the table slightly uncomfortably. But anyway, so they are all breaking out of the hospital because obviously they didn't sign any release forms because they're, you know, mutant outlaws. And Boom Boom just sort of blows a hole in the wall so that Emma can get through more easily. Boom Boom obviously belongs with X Factor, whose basic motto is why use a door when you could bust through a wall. And, you know, it's not like she hasn't thought about it. I don't know what you're getting so nuts about. I checked with Artie to make sure it wasn't a retaining wall or anything. See, she's totally learning. Exactly. 
yeah, they do in fact meet up with Mask, and Mask holds up his end of the bargain. He reshapes Emma's face to what it used to look like. Which is when we find out what the other end of the bargain was, which is that Mask now gets to fuck up Rusty's face. Yeah, and once Emma realizes that that's the deal, she's like, no, 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 I reject this. This isn't right. And Mask then just freaks out, messes up Rusty's face even more so much that he doesn't have a nose or mouth and can't breathe. God damn it, Mask. Get a new gimmick already. Like, he's done this so many times. And that's where Skids, you know, trying to protect this boy that she's starting to fall for, realizes she needs to do something. And to really do anything to Mask to fight him effectively at all, she needs to drop her force field. We get another flashback to the manifestation of her powers, but she is in this case able to drop her force field enough to basically partially strangle Mask, get him off Rusty, get him to fix Rusty. But Mask decides, you know what, the deal is off. I'm going to you know, mess Emma's face up again. And Emma's face, like he changes Emma's face, but I get the impression that it's still like intact. So I feel like she still kind of wins out here. Like it still looks d- damaged, but I assume that Mask isn't able to recreate like burned tissue as opposed to healthy tissue. That wouldn't really make sense relative to his abilities. So yeah, net win. I suppose so. And she actually feels okay about this. She takes this as a sign from God that physical beauty is unimportant and that what really matters is the goodness in people's hearts and decides to go and be a missionary to the Morlocks and And wanders off into the sewers. Where the Morlocks no longer live. There are some of them there. They're being led by Erg. So that's a slightly strange ending to this. They all head on back, but Rusty and Skids hang back a little bit. I mean, you know, Skids has learned to control her powers a little bit better. And Boo Boom's like, hey, Artie, we should um go. I think they need to talk about something. That is remarkably sensitive of Boom Boom. It really is. And so she gives them the space for a sexy, sexy teenage fade to black. And I got to say, as far as motivation to learn about your powers, because they do decide, okay, we're going to stay with X Factor. We're going to keep training. The ability to have sexy times with someone you really like, like that's pretty motivating right there. Although Skids also makes the comment that, you know, Rusty can totally learn to control his powers if he just tries hard enough, which honestly is kind of not true. I mean, Rusty can. Yes. But assuming that that is a default, that she basically pulls a well, if I can learn to do it, then anyone can learn to do it. They just have to believe even themselves. It's like, yeah. Well, unless you're Cyclops and you have brain damage. Or Leech or a large number of other mutants whose powers don't come with off switches. I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, control over powers is an exception, but it's definitely not a rule. It's true. So that brings us to X-Factor 17. And this opens with Iceman returning from crossover adventures in Thor number 377 and 378. Miles, you want to take this one? I totally do. So I have an idea for this new feature, and I don't know if we'll ever do it again, but it's Miles Thor Corner, or, or better yet, Miles Thorner. Yeah! That sounds like a member of the Misfits. It sounds awesome. So this will only happen when there are Thor footnotes? It'll happen whenever possible, but yes, realistically, probably just there. All right, so welcome to the first ever... Miles's Thorner. So Iceman just sort of disappeared into the middle of nowhere a few issues back, and it turns out he went over to Thor number 377 and 378. Specifically, he was magicked away by Loki, who is trying to gain power by regrowing the Frost Giants who had been shrunk down to tiny size by Baldur the Brave in Baldur's own miniseries. Okay. Yeah, it all makes perfect sense, don't worry. And so what Loki's doing is he's teleported Iceman into this big-ass machine, as we all know, Walter Simonson in the Jack Kirby. Kirby School of Thought draws a bunch of magic-y stuff that is also very technological and it looks awesome all the time. And he's radiating Iceman's powers outward to feed this cold into the Frost Giants to regrow them. With me so far? I guess. Yeah, so the Frost Giants, as they grow, are like, hey, this is awesome, super cold power, we're getting huge. Wait, we want to get huger. Loki turned it off. Let's go kill him and take his ice power. At which point Loki says, crap, and teleports Thor over there. See, this is why you don't make deals with Frost Giants. Come on. There are so many reasons. 
Now, Thor has been up to his own stuff. He's been forging this armor in Pittsburgh. He uh, rented out a foundry using the Rheingold, like you do. Pittsburgh sticks out in this summary. It's the mystical realm of Pittsburgh. You know, they have a lot of steel mills. That's fair. Um, And so, uh, as he's been doing this, apparently he's been forging so hardcore that in the Dark Elves realm of Svartalfheim, like, their shit's all fallen apart. So they attack him and send Grendel, like, you know, from Beowulf, after him to stop him. Wait. He's been shaking a Svartalfheim. Is it because he's forging so hard or because he's using so much iron in the process? Either way, I think it's just because he's being so awesome at blacksmithing. And so they attack and they're actually kind of kicking his ass because he's still cursed by Hela, like, you know, from the end of the Mutant Massacre. We talked about that. Right, where he can't heal, which is also why he has a beard now. Uh, Yes, because his face is all messed up. So, you know, they're kicking his ass and he's got this great speech. Though I should perish a thousand times, monster, I will never surrender to mine enemies. If this truly be Thor's final battle, then let the Skalds forever say that though his body failed him in the end, his fighting heart spurned every thought of defeat. While I will be the first to admit that this is absolutely delightful, I feel like we're kind of veering away from Iceman right now, so can we pull it back to that? Uh, We can, but the X-Men connection there is that I feel like Thor and Magma should hang out because they're both really good at giving epic speeches right before they're about to die. I feel like you're really just looking for excuses to read a lot of Thor speeches. I mean, you're not wrong. It's not that I'd fault you for that, but we are on a schedule. Yes, well. Point being, at that point, Thor gets teleported over there, and he wakes up just in time to save Iceman and Loki from the Frost Giants. So, you know, he's got his armor at this point, he summons it onto him, he's super badass, there's a big fight, and by the end of it, Thor has taken Iceman away, he recognizes Iceman's uniform from having met X-Factor during the Mutant Massacre, and is on his way back to Midgard, star, subtitle, Earth, to return him to his friends. Which he does. Unfortunately for Iceman, his powers are screwed up at this point. His baseline power level is much, much higher, and he's having a horrible time not only getting out of ice form and back to human form, but even thawing to the point of being able to move, not just turning into a block of ice. Now, this is specifically because as a way to try to defeat Loki, he tried to overload Loki's machines by basically freezing harder than he ever had. So the combination of that and the sorcery has messed things up pretty thoroughly. So much for the one relatively untouched member of X-Factor. I guess there's still Beast, but that's also not going to last too long. And Iceman comes back already, you know, himself in kind of rough shape, you know, shivering and freezing alternatively to find his teammates dressed in somber suits and ties. Recognizing this as a typical, he asks, what's up with the yuppie clothes, Hank? Going to a funeral? Oh, oh yeah, actually, that's exactly what's going on, Iceman. Your joke was not funny because it was true. Right, Iceman wasn't around when Angel died. So he is coming back with his powers super messed up to the news that one of his oldest friends totally committed suicide by airplane. And they head out to that funeral, and there are just protesters on both sides, both pro and anti-mutant outside of the funeral chapel. There's a bunch of anti-mutant graffiti inside. Again, largely thanks to the efforts of journalist Trish Tilby, Warren Worthington's involvement in X-Factor has become very, very public knowledge, and his status as a mutant already was, and so he's become kind of the linchpin of a lot of the controversy surrounding X-Factor. Not only are journalists gathered outside and protesters, but someone's actually gotten into the church and spray-painted dye mutant scum over the altar, which strikes me as kind of redundant at a funeral, but... You know, it's one of those Westboro Baptist Church kind of things. It's basically just using a tragedy to spread more hate. You know, it's worth touching on, too. You know, we were talking about who's at the funeral, and Caliban and Leech actually show up, too, in disguise, because Angel basically got killed saving them. There's also someone who notably isn't there, and that's the X-Men. Yeah, and they kind of wonder why, and I love Gene's quote here. Maybe they went off in space. They do that sometimes. You're not wrong, Gene. But no, I think the X-Men are busy making plans to fake their own deaths at this point, but it still seems like kind of a dick move that they don't show up here. Like, that actually kind of bugs me. 
Yeah, I mean, I know the books weren't really supposed to overlap at this point, but still, they kind of should have. Right, so X-Factor heads home miserable. As they're returning, a call comes in from, I believe, the governor. A mutant named Richter and a group of people claiming to be the exterminators are threatening to shake San Francisco into the sea. As you may recall, we can be pretty certain that this group isn't the exterminators because the exterminators are X-Factor in their mutant identities. And so they're like, okay, well, what do we do? I mean, yes, we're grieving, but this stuff is really important. Let's go stop this. And Caliban, the Morlock who came back for the funeral, volunteers to go with him. He's a mutant hound. His power is that he can find other mutants. So he says, hey, I can be useful in finding this Richter guy. There's one member of X-Factor who's not as eager to go, and that is Scott, who is busy standing on the roof and talking to hallucinations of dead people, which is what's been his main leisure activity for the last several issues. God, yeah, poor guy. I mean, I can't blame him. He's been through some horrible, horrible things. We're not the only ones noticing this because somewhere else, watching through a camera on the ubiquitous mystery villain setup, someone else is watching smugly as Scott yells at his imaginary dead wife. Ha! A proper leader for a band of cripples. Scott Summers teeters on the brink of insanity. And the lovely Jean hopes duty will anchor him to reality. These star-crossed lovers are the ones the others look to. And they have balked me at every turn. But Warren is no longer here to protect them. How delightfully simple it will be to destroy them both. Boss villain speech, bro. Yeah, seriously. So, you know, while mystery camera guy is watching Scott, Boom Boom also sees that Scott is talking to nothing on the roof and goes to tell Beast about it. She's like, hey, your buddy's kind of cracked, I think, dude. But unfortunately, Boom Boom's other major way of communicating with Beast is blowing his shit up. And this time she drops one of her time bombs in his lab. He's furious, chases her off. She ducks into a closet and is teleported into another miniseries. She will be off with the fallen angels for the next several months. So anyway, after all this goes down, they do, in fact, all fly out to San Francisco. They take the X-Factor plane, which doesn't have a cool name like the Blackbird. And they specifically go as the exterminators. This is Bobby's idea. They can come in and save the day as mutants. They can prove that it's not the exterminators who've done this thing. Try to shake off some of the X-Factor identity. And they can go back to being what the X-Men were, which was good mutants stopping evil mutants rather than mutant hunters going after them. I find it really fascinating that Bobby, after he comes back from his ordeal in Asgard, is really the one who's kind of taking charge and trying to affect positive change for X-Factor and for mutants in general. He's usually been the one who's been more in the background, more just sort of the happy-go-lucky jokester that doesn't ever take charge. And now he's the one saying, hey, things are wrong. We need to fix them. I want to come back to this later because Bobby's arc over these issues is fascinating and I think in a lot of ways kind of the heart of this particular story. But first, San Francisco. Caliban has never been on a plane before, and he is super excited. On the plane, Bobby reaches under where life vests would normally be and gives Caliban what he refers to as, you know, a sort of life preserver, a sort of life vest, which turns out to be an X-Factor costume. Which is so charming. Caliban is so excited to get to be a member of the team. Except that... It means that they have spare costumes instead of life vests on the plane, which I feel like is a really big problem and one that X-Factor, Cyclops in particular, as their leader, you'd expect to be kind of a stickler about given his backstory. No, 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 it's fine. In the event of a water landing, ice slides can be used as flotation devices. Yeah, but no. Oh, well. So they do get to San Francisco, and they find this mutant signature. Caliban's able to use his powers and say, hey, that Richter guy I think is right there in that big tall building. 
Unfortunately, members of the terrorist group affiliated with both Richter and the exterminators are nominally affiliated with them. This is a group called the Right Attack in helicopters. And X Factor manages to shake them off, gets to the building. And they're still assuming at this point that Richter must be a supervillain, that he is the mastermind in charge of all of this. So they're surprised to discover that he is actually a kid who's strapped into a massive machine and he is being tortured to force him to activate his earthquake powers. Yeah. So they get him out of there. They head over to their helicopter just to escape because, you know, the building is about to collapse. And they're also worried that that collapse will destroy all of San Francisco based on where the building is located. Gene manages to forestall this by briefly knocking Richter out, I think, by reversing his blood flow momentarily. She does this while she's juggling several helicopters. And that combination convinces Scott even more that maybe she's actually really Phoenix again, because that's a level of telekinesis that she hasn't really manifested on X Factor previously. Now, he's been suspicious more and more of this. He's seen the Phoenix Raptor flare around her once, but he's also been hallucinating a lot. So to the reader, it's really unclear at this point. Does he have a point or is he just still losing it? Either way, X Factor is in trouble. The cops are still chasing him and Iceman again kind of jumps into the lead here. He's got access to the broadcast system from the helicopter and he just grabs it and over the protests of his teammates decides that he's just going to go ahead and make a public statement. Listen up out there. This is the exterminators speaking. Hey, the exterminators are not responsible for that mess down there. People were. Iceman, that's enough. Give me the mic. They kidnapped a mutant child, tortured him, tried to make him destroy your city, but we stopped them. Mutants are like everybody else, except they've got powers. Some are bad, but most are good. Come on, Iceman. The mic's icing over. We saved you. Remember that. Calm down, pal. Sit back. Try to relax. Somebody clear this windshield. All this ice. We're practically flying blind. All of you, listen up out there. No mutants by our deeds, and be glad that we exist. And I like this because, you know, as I was transcribing this, I realized the dialogue is not very flowery. It's not very poetic the way that impressive dialogue in X-Men comics often is. But that kind of fits because that's Bobby. He's not an orator. He's not an expert at speeches. He's just a dude with his heart very much in the right place. I think you described him when we were talking about this as kind of the anti-Hodge. To what extent there's a perfect antithesis to Hodge on the team because he's the guy who doesn't have a ton of institutional power who's basically entirely, you know, all heart, no forethought. Right, whereas Hodge is all deliberately chosen speech and manipulating people to get the exact right result. Not to mention the fact that their goals are completely opposite. But he's so much the heart of X Factor at this point. Like, he's kind of their compass. He's the thing that points them back to what matters. The way that X Factor is spiraling up until the point when Bobby says, no, we're going as the exterminators. No, we're doing this right. Honestly, like what I keep on coming back to is the animated Justice League and Flash. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I'm not going to go off on this tangent right now, but suffice to say, Justice League is amazing. Wally West Flash is the one true Flash, and I will fight you over that. Well, anyway, speaking of fighting. He's the best. There's more of that. The best. Screw Barry Allen. So that takes us to X-Factor number 18, where they do manage to escape Richter in tow, get back to headquarters, and basically start to thaw out Iceman, who, as he's gotten more and more emotional, his powers have been picking up more and more. Speaking of emotions, Scott and Gene are falling apart. Scott is convinced that Gene's the phoenix. He is being kind of hilariously passive-aggressive about it. She's furious, and Rusty and Skids are once again kind of aghast, and it leads to some of the best dialogue ever. Or Skids is just like, Rusty, what's with Scott? He's been acting weird ever since his wife was killed. Fancy that. Right? Superheroes, man. And, you know, these young lovers are also starting to worry about whether, you know, is that what love looks like? Although Rusty makes the salient point. 
look, you're not likely to have some energy creature bury you in suspended animation and pretend she's you, and I'm not likely to marry somebody who looks like you because I think you're dead, only to have you turn up really alive and then have the girl I married get killed. That is probably true, yes. I feel like Rusty is the expert of the 1980s. He's our predecessor right here. So X-Factor tries to get things back to normal, which involves a lot of training. And one of those training sessions is with Scott and Richter. Now, Richter mentions that he doesn't like Cameron Hodge, who he's met briefly, because his voice reminds him of the leader of the organization that kidnapped and tortured him. Now, Scott's been more and more suspicious of Hodge as he's been going, you know, crazier and crazier, starting to think that Gene is Phoenix and stuff like that. So he's like, well, let me go check on the computer and see what I can learn about Hodge. You're missing one really relevant detail there, which is that the reason he knows that the computer has those files is that earlier in this issue, he was meeting with Hodge and he was asking about the dark phoenix stuff and hodge said you should go check the computer the computer's got information on everything go type things into the computer scott type words this specific computer go forth do that do that hodge is really into this idea yeah and so he does and immediately dark phoenix herself appears coming directly out of the monitor to taunt scott love is for the most part illusion you couldn't save gene so phoenix took her you couldn't save phoenix so you took maddie you couldn't save Maddie, and yet Jean is back, whole, warm, loving, yours. The biggest illusion of all. And Scott is just falling apart just in time for Jean to show up and see what's going on. And he just looks at her and basically calls her Phoenix. He is 100% convinced at this point, and she doesn't know what the hell's going on. Because the dark phoenix that he was talking to disappeared the moment before she walked in. And so she just starts to confront him. Such fire, majesty, power. It was like loving a goddess, wasn't it? You think I didn't know? Phoenix imitated me, took my likeness. Why do I feel like the counterfeit? And then they just destroy the hell out of the entire floor of the building because it's X-Factor. And I feel like X-Factor expresses feelings and goes places. And it's just, you know, X-Factor is all about knocking down walls. Knocking down walls is X-Factor's thing. X-Men, you know, fight to protect a world that hates and fears them. X-Factor just blasts through fucking walls. And here they are knocking down the walls around their hearts. But actually, this scene I really love because, yes, it's over the top and melodramatic. I mean, X-Factor is, as we said, the soapiest of the soap opera. Scott's actually going to comment on that next issue. Like, he says something like, lucky us with such dramatic ways to, you know, have feelings at each other. It's not that exactly, but I, it's something like that. But yeah, they're having this knockdown, drag out fight. Damn, you're killing each other. But this has been building up since X-Factor number one. Since Scott didn't tell Jean about the fact that he had a wife, since, you know, he didn't tell her about the fact that he thought she was Phoenix, just implied it, she's been getting more and more fed up by this man who claimed to love her ages ago, and has just been treating her terribly. He's been getting more and more unstable, and this right here is finally the catharsis we've been waiting for. Well, I want to kind of even unpack this a little bit further, because they have both been in horrible positions relative to the team. People have been looking to the two of them to basically be the team parents, you know, to lead in the field, to run training, and and one of them is still adjusting to coming back from the dead, and the other one has literally been having a nervous breakdown for 18 issues. They are a fucking mess, more than I would say any other members of the team, and they just have had no time to deal with that and no leeway to. Like, they've just been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to live up to and lead into those expectations. And that's been something that they've both been bringing up relative to their experience on the X-Men, too, which is interesting, seeing how they do and don't pull Professor Xavier and their memories of that in. Absolutely. So Scott decides that what he really needs to do to prove to Jean that she's actually the Phoenix is to get her to do something that the Phoenix did long, long before. You might remember this from the Phoenix saga. Scott and, and Phoenix are out in, I think, Arizona on a butte, and she tells him to take off his visor and is able to contain his optic blasts. And so Scott's like, you're the Phoenix. I can prove it at this point and pulls off his visor like a foot away from Jean. 
And sure enough, the blasts don't come out of his eyes, and he's convinced he's right, he's won. And then we see that Leech is right there, just sadly saying no powers, and then more firmly no powers, because Leech dampens mutant powers just by being there. And this is where Scott realizes how bad things have gotten, because if Leech hadn't been there, he would have killed Jean Grey. Leech is, in general, the only reason that most of the members of X-Factor are alive at this point. And as they're dealing with this revelation, one of the characters walks back into the room where the computer was, and hey, there's that Dark Phoenix image again saying the same stuff. Well, they don't just walk into the room, they hit a key. And what it turns out is that any key you hit on the keyboard will pull up a Dark Phoenix hologram yelling. Exactly. So they realize pretty quickly, wait a minute, Cameron Hodge has been trying to drive us insane. He's been orchestrating all of these events to tear us apart. We've got to stop this guy. So this raises a question, and it's something I've never been able to work out, which is how much of what's going on with Scott is Hodge and how much is actually Scott hallucinating? Yeah, I don't think it's really clear. I mean, we know like Dark Phoenix, for instance, is a hologram from Hodge, but Scott talking to ghosts on top of the roof back when he was in Alaska? Hard to say. Right. I mean, it makes the most sense to read it as a mix of both, which is interesting. In the aftermath of this, this leads into X-Factor 19. They go after Hodge, and Hodge at this point is missing. He has just disappeared. Presumably having realized he's been found out. So Scott and Jean kind of unpack this and, you know, make up, essentially. They clean start up, to clean up the rubble of, you know, the top floor of the X-Factor building. I feel like X-Factor is really good at cleaning up rubble by this point. You'd think. And at the same time, Bobby, Hank, and Caliban, who's now a full member of X-Factor, are patrolling the city looking for Boom Boom. And as they go, keep encountering both pro-mutant and anti-mutant people, which agitates Bobby more and more. He starts to ice up more and more. This is the way his powers work now. The more emotionally intense he's feeling the more hardcore they get. Right, he's leaving ice bridges everywhere, and he's making a mess of the city, and people are getting more and more and more freaked out. Bobby finally just loses his temper and is like, yeah, you're mad at me? Go call X-Factor, why don't you? Right, and so the person who's watching this is Apocalypse, up in his ship. Now, we've seen him gathering his horsemen over the last many issues. We've seen him turn these normal, if damaged, people into these, like, metallic super beings, and we've seen him plot and plan and wait, and apparently now's the time. Well, we've seen him do this with three of his horsemen. We've just found out, I think at the end of number 18, that he has recruited the fourth, but we don't yet know who that is. Three of the horsemen, though, are sitting around hanging out in the headquarters, basically being horrible and snarky. Life with Apocalypse basically just plays to me like the worst sitcom ever. Yeah, like War and Famine are having these big arguments about a hamburger. It, it kind of reminds me of Terrible Vaudeville, like, you know, a Celestial just pulls Apocalypse off stage with one of those hook canes. So from ski instructor to failed vaudevillian. That's Apocalypse. That is the most intimidating villain it's in the X fall. universe. And so he's like, all right, well, you guys think that you don't need to work together. You keep talking with derision about the fourth horseman that I've been working on. Fine. Go fight Iceman and Beast and Caliban and tell me how well that goes for you and just teleports them out there. He teleports them out there on their ridiculous robot steeds, which I refuse to accept as horses. Okay, but they do look really awesome. Walter Simonson draws, like, robot monsters. Not robot monster like the old B-movie, but robotic monsters. Oh, he is a roman. You are a human. It's so true. But anyway, Walter Simonson draws, like, these robotic horse things so awesomely. Like, they're each different. They each look vaguely mammalian, but also vaguely just not okay. They do not look like horses. They do not even really look like things modeled off horses. What they remind me most of are sort of robot versions of the war wolves. 
Yeah, kind of. It's true. But anyway, so the three horsemen of Apocalypse attack the small group of X-Factor that are around here. And this does not initially go very well. I mean, the horsemen of Apocalypse are ridiculously powerful. War can clap his hands and cause, like, giant detonations. Famine can sort of touch or shoot beams at anything organic to sort of wither away anything food-related. And Pestilence, anyone she touches, gets horribly, horribly sick. How far do famine's powers go? Because it goes between being able to destroy food to being able to destroy sustenance to being able to destroy, you know, organic material. And we see her decay trees. Like, should she be able to decay humans as well? I mean, cannibalism is technically a possible means of sustenance, right? I feel like her powers are just sort of determined by the necessities of the plot. Fair enough. So back at X-Factor headquarters, Scott and Jean become aware of the situation and Jean wants to go out and help them. And Scott is understandably reluctant given the fact that he feels that he is really not appropriately stable to be leading in the field. And the thing is, he is totally right about this. He has been hallucinating. He really shouldn't be going out and leading a group of people in a life or death fight. This is not a good plan. And finally, Jean convinces him that now nah, we can totally do that. It'll be just like the good old days, only with also your imaginary friends. And when they show up, things are not going well for X-Factor, um, mainly because Pestilence has touched Beast and just taken him completely out of commission. He's burning up with fever. He seems to be dying. And she's doing the same thing to the gathered bystanders. The team members of X-Factor who are there realize if they don't stop the horsemen, all of these people and maybe the city itself, if this plague spreads, are going to die. Right. War and famine are kind of known quantities. They can affect limited specific areas. Pestilence has the potential to do a lot more damage and to do damage that's much more, you know, self-propelling. They don't know if you have to be touched by pestilence to get sick or whether pestilence's pestilence is, in fact, independently contagious. And so Scott comes up with kind of a last-ditch solution. He tells Iceman, you know how your powers have been going out of control and you've been trying to hold them in to keep from freezing everything? Fuck that. Freeze everything. And he does. He freezes all of Central Park, which if you've ever been to Central Park, it's pretty big. It's really big. And basically, he's just encased in this giant, like, labyrinth of ice. And the horsemen are, in fact, frozen in place, rendered helpless. Now, they're quickly teleported back to Apocalypse's ship by Apocalypse himself. Just in time for a lecture on the value of collaboration. This demonstration of the value of teamwork will be of more use than all my coercion. Um, okay, Apocalypse. You do that. He's like the world's most dramatic preschool teacher. Now, Apocalypse, while his other three horsemen were out fighting, has been working on his fourth horseman, Death. And it's in this issue that we get our first glimpse of Death. We've seen him hinted at in silhouette previously. But here we finally actually see his face and his blonde eyebrows. And we hear him talking about how he would give anything to fly again. So it's pretty clear to anyone who's been paying attention, Apocalypse has either saved or resurrected Angel and is turning him into something, is turning him into one of his horsemen, one of these like superpowered dark, dark beings. And that right there is going to be on the slow burn for a while now. It'll be a full, I believe, eight months between Angel's apparent suicide and when X-Factor actually finds out that he is death. X-Factor has saved the city, but they've done it at tremendous cost. I mean, Central Park is basically destroyed. It's trapped under a glacier, pretty much. But that being said, they did win, and they did probably save the entire city. And Scott, for the first time, is starting to feel okay about things. It's not the neurotic who leads this group, Gene. It's the bit of Xavier that's in me. The bit that's made of sterner stuff. The bit he trained to think to react automatically in a crisis. It's what I was made for, what we were all made for. Mutant hunting, mutant saving, that stays. But Cameron Hodge has got to go. That's such a Cyclops character moment. Like, for him, validation is 100% about feeling useful. Totally. So, yeah, we get a small win for X-Factor. 
I mean, not a huge one because Iceman's currently frozen in a block of ice and Beast may or may not be dying of like all of the plagues ever put together. But still, they saved the city. They saved New York. So Central Park is still in ruins, and that takes us to X-Factor number 20. This isn't a very plot-heavy episode, and what it mostly does is provide a coda to Bobby's speech from X-Factor, I think, 18, about mutants. By their deeds, you shall know them. So basically, the kids are seeing how badly beaten up X-Factor is, how down Bobby is about everything. He's starting to think maybe mutants really are a pure force of destruction. Look what we did. And the kids decide that they are going to do what plucky comic book kids do when the adults are all sort of giving up hope. And they're, they're going to go out and fix things. And Rusty first heads out. He's thinking maybe he can melt some of the ice in Central Park. He runs afoul of a gang who accidentally, you know, shoot down some of the ice that's in trees. He gets buried under a snowdrift. The other kids come and find him. And collectively, they melt almost all of the ice, leaving only big letters spelling out, by their deeds, you shall know them. Mutants were here. And so Bobby, who's still sort of recovering, sees this on the news and for the first time thinks maybe this is all going to be okay. You know, I talked earlier about Bobby being kind of a, a kid analogous character, but especially as he's growing up more and fast. It's really this group of kids who over and over kind of ground X Factor in their better natures, in their mission, in what they're actually there to be doing outside of the pretense that Hodge has set up. Yeah, and I think that really is where you see the big turning point in X Factor. As Louise Simonson starts to really put her voice into the book, it's having these two sets of characters, the original five X-Men or whichever of them are around at any given time, and these kids who are just learning to control their powers, but also who they are. Both groups really balance each other well. When we started talking about X-Factor, one of the things that we brought up is that it's a group of people who've never really functioned as grown-ups, who were essentially raised in a weird paramilitary enclave as superheroes, as teenagers, and whose adult lives have been deeply, deeply bizarre and heavily influenced by that. And X-Factor is, as much as anything else, about this group of people learning to be people, learning to be adults and learning to come into their own as something other than X-Men. And the introduction of a second generation, having them gradually take on the role of teachers and really struggle with what that means and really, really struggle, especially I think in Cyclops and Jean's case, with how much of Xavier's legacy they want to directly recreate is something that is a really pivotal part of that process, especially in this story, and that I think issue 20 really just puts a beautiful cap on. Yeah, and really this in some ways is the cap of this first era of Louis Simonson's X Factor, because now Scott and Gene are finally in okay shape. Scott's realizing that he does have his shit together. He is able to lead this team and be his own person. Well, he's realizing that he might be capable of leading the team and that they need to do it anyway. I think it's fairly clear that he does not have his shit together. But there's no one actively projecting holograms at him. So, you know, that'll help. Speaking of, they know that Cameron Hodge has been manipulating them. They're, they know that the idea of X-Factor investigations and the X-Terminators is not working. And basically, they're able to go forward and actually be proactive for a change. Speaking of going forward, it is time for us to take a look at listener questions. GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, Considering he was from ancient Egypt and he basically slept through the entire Christian era, why does Apocalypse use so much imagery from the Book of Revelation? That's basically his whole shtick down to his name. Okay. When Apocalypse was first created at the end of Bob Layton's run as a writer and the beginning of Louis Simonson's run, all there really was was a name and his basic concept, very powerful dude with a survival of the fittest philosophy. At that point, he was a last-minute substitute for the daredevil villain, the Owl, who was supposed to be the one who was leading the Alliance of Evil. 
But, you know, Marvel Editorial and Louis Simonson didn't think that was badass enough. Correct choice. So, in fact, it was so last minute that the editor, Bob Harris, actually had the artist Jackson Geis redo the last page after he'd already finished it with the owl. I'd love to see a version of the original page. There were some references to Apocalypse being immortal at that point, but all that Egypt stuff actually didn't show up until the early to mid-90s and issues of X-Force and Cable. I don't think a lot of people realize that, that the Egypt stuff was a total retcon. Originally, the only mythology or symbolism Apocalypse had was stuff from the Book of Revelations, you know, Four Horsemen, the End of the World, that sort of thing. And by the time they brought in ancient Egypt, it was really too late to overwrite that. Exactly. Hence Apocalypse having one foot in each mythology and no real link between the two. I assume there are angry geese in the Bible somewhere. That's probably true, the Book of Angry Geese. So, Greg emailed us to ask, Something that's been driving me crazy about the X-Men comics since I began reading them as a first grader is that they're supposedly hated and feared by the general population, but it only seems like they're hated and feared by the most radical of radical villains and extremists, while the rest of the world is as indifferent to them as to any other young hero. I think the problem comes from there not being a good reason to hate and fear them, which is what happens when the only new X-Men are already heroic and virtuous before they even get powers. Where are all the terrible bullies who are then blessed with super strength or the nerd who gets the power to mind control people that picked on them? Do you think the mutants that become the X-Men should be made up of regular jackasses like I was in high school? Or do you think that the X-Men were already the X-Men in spirit before the powers? So in this era, I think we see actually a lot of popular anti-mutant sentiment. Most of it here is clustered around X-Factor and their ad campaign, but the impression that I always got was that while the groups we were seeing come into direct conflict with the X-Men were fringe extremists, they were expressing an extreme of what was generally, again, a popular sentiment. To make an analogy that I recognize as fairly inappropriate, it's like the fact that you can say, yes, most people do not actually perform lynchings, but racism is still widespread. The parts of it we see the X-Men come in conflict with are the parts that are scaled to a superhero team. By the same token, actually, you ask the question about what happens when bullies get powers or what happens when the school nerd who no one pays attention to suddenly gets mind control. And we're actually going to see more and more and more of that as the line grows and develops. Part of why we haven't, I think, is that X-Men has been fairly self-contained, that we've mostly seen the schools and the students around the Xavier Institute. And as we get the chance to see more and more mutants manifesting, we're going to see more and more of that. But, you know, honestly, we've been seeing it from the very beginning. I'm thinking of Blob even early on in the circus and the I've got superpowers. Awesome. I'm just going to use them for my own gain here. Yeah. Or uh, Eunice the Untouchable, who's a total bully. And he was way early on. And we see that more and more in the runs that are focused on the combination, usually of younger characters and recruitment. So eras where a lot of mutants are manifesting. It's something we see actually that's explored in really, really interesting ways in Karen Gillan's series about the lights. Oh, the five lights. Yeah. Yeah. Generation Hope. And yeah, I don't know. For me, I think it's all about everyone having potential for good or bad, because you see a lot of X-Men with dark pasts who are not necessarily very good people before they join the team. But it's really Xavier's idealism, or at least Xavier's dream, that kind of turns them to the side of the angels. And I think by the same token, you see good characters like Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch that end up on the wrong side just because that's how they ended up. So I don't think it's so much the nature of characters when they get their powers as who they end up kind of imprinting on and what ideals they decide to adopt. So that's it for questions. We are a listener-supported podcast that is mostly via Patreon, and some of those Patreon tiers come with thanks on the podcast from a number of fictional characters and fictional contexts. And this episode, I believe we are turning those thanks over to the anachronistic supervillain himself, Apocalypse. War, pestilence, famine. Such power has been given you, and yet you bicker like metal-faced children. Working together, you could lay waste to the masses, creating a world inhabited only by the strong. Why can't you be more like Ludwig Carlson and Matt Wagner the Blind Archer? 
They know the value of teamwork, cooperation, and sharing. And also of doing terrible things while riding weird metal horses. Given that there is absolutely nothing I can add to that, I will just say that Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and is made possible by its generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, We'll be posting our very first live episode recorded the weekend that you're listening to this one, actually. Join us along with special guests Anne Nascenti, Jeff Parker, and Christopher Yost as we tackle our most ambitious topic yet. Live from Rose City Comic Con. (laughs) 